Happy New Year from me and Shane. Tonight, we have a really special guest. Our topic's going to be a little bit different. Tonight, we have Kate McDowell, who actually is a listener to the podcast and was making some awesome comments when we were discussing the different issues that surround the abuse that happened in the archdiocese. So I engaged Kate and asked her if she would be our guest. Our big topic tonight is going to be about how families can talk among themselves about the issue of pedophilia. And because Shane and I are not experts in that field, we thought Kate would be a good person that we could use as a resource. So what we'd like to do first is ask Kate to tell us a little bit about herself. Um, Kate, if you could tell us what your background is, maybe some of the experiences you've had in counseling, and especially you're in the field of working with families and children. So welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be able to talk on this subject. I have a Bachelor of Science in Applied Psychology with some criminal justice emphasis. I have a master's degree in social work. I'm a licensed independent clinical social worker. I have been in the social service field for about 26 years now. In the last 10, I have been doing trauma-specific therapy with children and families as well as adults. My experiences that I've had, specific experience being a victim of child sexual abuse by the Archdiocese in Minnesota, as well as working with victims. Kate, of course, throughout the podcast series on Sister Kathy, the word pedophilia comes up, abuse. Can you walk us through what pedophilia is and what are some good ways that parents and families can approach this subject? Pedophilia is actually a mental health disorder, a specific diagnosable disorder. And I can go over the basics of it in the terms of how we would diagnose it, criteria for diagnosing that. Because there's a lot of conversation about pedophilia, especially when we're referencing the things that happen in the Catholic Church, I think sometimes there's things that get kind of confused. With pedophilic disorder that's diagnosable, you're looking at people who have, over a six-month period at least, a recurrent intense sexual arousing fantasies that involve sexual activity with prepubescent children or children generally around the age of puberty. People don't necessarily have to act on these urges to have that diagnosis. And I think that can be a misperception a lot because there are people out there that have this diagnosis that have never acted on it. But because the urges and fantasies can cause such marked distress, they can get that diagnosis. The individual has to be at least 16 years of age to get that diagnosis. They can't be younger than that. And they have to be at least five years older than the child or children that they've had as a victim. When you're looking at it in the sense of trying to teach children about what that looks like, I talk about this a lot in my work and I, with colleagues in general. When you're looking at the generational kind of differences of what we were taught in my generation, everyone talked about that stranger, that dark alley person that lurked and you got to be aware of that stranger. And in reality, most victims know their perpetrator. And so when you're talking about trying to teach children about being safe from a pedophile, there, there's a pedophile that's going to potentially act on it that is causing that. There are people who aren't necessarily pedophiles, but opportunists that have sex, sexual urges and children are easy prey. 
And so what we need to do to teach our children, most importantly, really, that I always say as a number one thing is we need to teach children that they're worth something. You know, there, there are many generations that children are best seen and not heard. And there's this different value that's placed on children in different societies and different families, different cultures, that you're lesser than. So when children learn that, and it's not that we're teaching them, you know, that to be malicious or to make them lesser than, I heard many times growing up, I'll always believe an adult over you. So when you hear something like that, or when a child comes to you or has done something wrong and you belittle them and you make them feel horrible for their actions and you're kind of beating them up for engaging a behavior that's really developmentally appropriate, they feel lesser than. They have that shame. They have that thing where it's like, God, I better not have that conversation again with my parent, with my loved one, with the person that's supposed to be safe because they don't think I'm good enough. Really, the biggest thing that I feel that we can teach kids is that no matter what you do, no matter what you think, no matter what you've heard, you are safe telling me. I won't blow my top. I'm not going to make you feel bad. Yes, we can share with them. I might get mad because I just am frustrated, but own your own feelings. Don't put them put that on a child and say, but I'm always safe. No matter what, you can come tell me. I, I read a thing on social media the other day about a woman who said they had an event happen over the Christmas break and her daughters were playing upstairs and the one daughter was playing really rough and ran into one of the drywall things that they had just put up and put a hole in it and came downstairs in tears, just bawling, saying, just feeling horrible about it and was afraid to go talk to her dad and wasn't sure what to do. And the mom was saying, basically saying, yep, it it was an accident when We'll figure it out. And then went and talked to her husband and said, we have two, th- two ways we can handle this. We can have her come to us and we can be calm and we can say accidents happen. We can talk through it or we can overreact and make her never want to talk to us again. And that's what we need to think about when we're talking to children about things to, as an adult that seem simple to us, but they're not. That's the child's learning. And so we have to say to them, no matter what, you're safe. We have to spend time with children. We have to, the people that fall prey to predators are loners. They're the people that, the the kids that are out there seeking attachment to someone. If we can't provide that time and attention to the children, we need to hook them up with resources that can provide that time and attention, like big brothers, big sisters, mentor programs, a relative, a trusted neighbor, those people that can say, hey, how you doing? What's going on in your life? And we need to teach them about their body. I know when I started having my children, there was finally a big push to teach kids the real names of their body parts. Because there was such a time where people would use slang for different body parts and it was cutesy and kids don't developmentally understand that difference. So we as parents have to say to them, these are your private parts. These are the names of them. Detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, Is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. 
She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is specific to you. And it's okay to say no to, to someone touching them. When we're bringing our kids to the doctor and we're saying, we're prepping them saying, this person may need to look at this. The doctor needs to be able to ask permission and tell the child, this is what I want to do. Is that okay? We have a lot of parents that are better now at setting boundaries for their kids. And so when kids, the simple piece of when I was a kid, we were always, we always had to hug and kiss our relatives. And I was never terribly comfortable with that. I used to hide and run and, and try, but I was always forced to do that. That's teaching that kids don't have the right to their own boundaries when they're forced to do that. So if your kid is saying and sh- or showing, I don't want to do it, don't make them do that and talk to the people that they're saying no to and just say, I'm, going, I'm teaching my child to respect their boundaries and I'm not going to force them to do that. Adults can get pretty snarky about that and say that it's disrespectful, that kids don't do it. But we are the advocates for our kids and we can say, nope, this is what I'm teaching. This is important for us to teach and honor that this is a boundary they're setting and they get to set that because it's their body. Before we move on, I wanted to just ask you quickly about something that you said. How young is too young to be bringing up the subject of saying no to people that might want to invade or child space, because with so much awareness now of what's going on in the Catholic Church, and for everybody that's listening to this podcast, I'm sure they've been thinking, okay, when do I talk to my teenagers about this? When do I talk to my toddlers about this? Is there like a guideline? And is this something that you do at the dinner table? Or is this like a one-on-one conversation? I don't have kids, so I don't have to deal with it right now. But a lot of people I know are thinking about what can I do to make sure my kids are safe? And when do I have this conversation with them that unfortunately we now have to have? And I think that is probably one of the biggest fears because I think we're afraid of scaring our kids by having the conversation The first step is as kids are growing and learning, as soon as they're starting to have the verbal skills and their kids have this natural curiosity. I know that you were a teacher for many years. You know, 
how kids just as they develop start to get curious in different ways. And so when they start to show that curiosity level and they're asking, what's this, what's that? That's the time to start teaching them. If they're pointing to that, wondering what that is, give them the real name of it. If they're pointing to a body part. And at that time, if it's your child and you're familiar with your child, then you generally have a sense of, you know, where their language skills are and their comprehension skills. So what we always used to talk about, they used to call a penis like a wee or something. You know, tell them what that is and what it's for. And, and you don't have to give over information. When someone is asking a question, a child, adult, anyone, give them the information that they're seeking. So if they say, what is that? Tell them what it is. If they ask further questions and you have the answer and it's, and it's an answer you feel comfortable giving, that's just fact-finding for a child. So answer in basic language what that is. If you feel like they're going down a road that you don't feel comfortable with, that's when you seek out either the help of a professional or there are a lot of really good books out there that the, those links I had shared on the Facebook site about having that conversation with kids, because I get it. It's not an easy conversation. Most of us grew up in, in situations that people certainly did not sit down and have a definitive conversation with us about protecting our bodies and what that looked like and using real terms. Be okay with your uncomfortableness, but don't use that as an excuse not to have the conversation. There are way too many resources out there now to not have the conversation. They are written up, they are spelled out specifically, work through your uncomfortableness because if your child sees you uncomfortable and ignoring and avoiding the question, that sets them up for more vulnerability because it becomes a, oh, I shouldn't talk that my mom's uncomfortable, that adult's uncomfortable. And again, it just sets a child's confusion for if you got a predator that's saying to them, this is a secret because mom and dad don't want to hear about that. And you're basically have proven to them, I don't want to talk about it. That's where those pieces start to connect for kids that are being eyed by it. And we'll make sure that when we publish your episode, that we will post the names of the resources that you suggest that might be things that you know families can take a look at and learn more from. My next question is actually a linguistics one, but it's come up many times on our podcast page. What is the difference between pedophilia and pederasty? Pedophilia is a diagnosable mental illness in disorder that is specific to sexual acts with children, and that can be either male or female. Pederasty is a, an ancient practice of sexual relationship between an adult male and a boy. And in, in a lot of literature, pedophilia and pederasty are used synonymously. And when they can be, I guess, if you're, you're looking at some of the basics of the sexual relationship between an adult and a child, absolutely, those are those pieces. But generally speaking, for pederasty, because it was kind of defined as a cultural norm in certain civilizations and sanctioned and encouraged, there's kind of some sociological discussions about whether or not people were actually attracted to the children or they just engaged in this kind of social norm. 
pedophilia is specific to having these really intense sexual fantasies and urges and behaviors involving that sexual activity. Is there a name for abuse of teens and then a different name for abuse of younger children? The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, known as DSM, requires that criteria for pedophilia specifies sexual interest in prepubescent children around age 13 or younger. The DSM does not diagnose hepophilia, the sexual interest in prepubescent children, or ephobilia, the sexual interest in later adolescents, directly. Instead, it goes under the diagnosis of other specified paraphilic disorder. A paraphilic disorder is defined by the DSM as recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors that are distressing or disabling, that involve inanimate objects, children, or non-consenting adults, or suffering or humiliation of oneself or the partner with the potential to cause harm. Kate, with using that term, pederasty, how long ago was that considered a social norm? And did it involve, was it sexual in nature or just being seen with a boy? Like, In sociological standpoint, that went back to ancient Greece and it was brought into the Roman Empire. It could have been a, a variety of different things. There's debate about whether it was just relationships of more of an educator mentor to an adolescent boy to also having relationships that were sexual in nature. I think it went the gamut from what I understand. And when the Roman Empire kind of got a hold of it, became increasingly, there's disapproval for it. Interestingly enough, the influence of the Catholic Church kind of criminalized it, but we know where that went. The next question we have, what are some signs that parents or friends, aunts, uncles could see within children to give them an idea that they could be being abused? One of the biggest signs that at least I probably see more often than not is a hyperarousal emotional state where actions, things that before would have been seemingly small, become rather large, rather fits of, you're like, where, where you've seen people, you're like, I'm not sure why this reaction is happening. This is a much larger reaction than ever is needed for whatever just happened. And then that can go the gamut to, your kid completely shuts down. They disengage from everything. Symptoms of usually when I hear of a child that's suddenly wetting the bed or having bowel issues, the, the first thing, unfortunately, a lot of clinical people go to, we go, what's happening? That's a unfortunately really common one that we see. Do they stop hanging out with their friends? Do they get into more fights? And are they not sleeping? Well? Are they having more nightmares? Starting to fail classes at school? Avoiding certain people, having more somatic complaints, always complaining of stomach aches, headaches, don't feel well in general, and nothing can really be figured out. A big one that we've seen rise in over the last really couple decades is self-injurious behavior of putting, burning, erasing the skin, runaway. And a lot goes with gut. People know their kids and they might, I just was talking to someone today. I'm on call for my second job, and it's a crisis, mobile crisis team. We had a situation, and the mom said, every teenager is depressed at some level. And so I just thought it was that. 
never assume that it's not, it is not normal for depression. Does it happen a lot? Is it, yes, do we get situational? But we should never just say, well, that's normal. We should always be checking out those little deviations in behavior, no matter how small. Or are they eating less? Are they eating more? Changes in your normal kind of day-to-day functioning with your child. Are they suddenly wanting to sleep with you more? Are they afraid when you leave the house? Do you kind of, a lot of kids normally go through that kind of detachment fear when, as they're growing, when their parents leave and they're left with a babysitter and it's scary, but are they reverting back to old kind of infantile behavior? What kind of resources are there for those people who feel like they are seeing those signs in either their children or their friends that they could possibly provide? There's always, I know in the state of Minnesota, we have mobile crisis teams in every county. And so I always encourage people to contact their local county social services offices, public health offices for information. Rain.org on, online is a great resource for all things in that area, and they can direct you to areas that, are, that are, can be local to you as well. A school counselor, school social worker, a teacher even. I know teachers are overloaded, but they can, they can direct to the resources that they have within their school if you don't know what resources you have in, their, in your school. If, you're, if you do have a good relationship with a member of the clergy, you can use that too. I sadly almost hate saying that because there's just, there's so many, that's a trigger for so many people. There, every social service agency in the United States should have resources available for that. If it's a crisis, the text crisis lines can direct you to that too, and they're national for suicide hotline as well. You don't have to be suicidal to access those hotlines. They aren't there just for that person that's literally standing on the edge. They're there to help people not get to the edge. Again, before moving on to the next question, you've given us so much information. I keep thinking of other things, but do you recommend that if parents suspect that very young children are being sexually abused, that they involve their pediatrician to confirm that, or do they go directly to the police? Here's how I would look at it and the information I would give. If someone came to me with that, if they thought there was an immediate danger that this person was going to be in the picture, I would go to the police first or you thought that this person was immediate danger to someone else, you can go to the police almost simultaneously with going to the pediatrician. The police will direct you for that. And in most, and I would imagine in some rural counties, they're not going to have access to a forensic interviewer. But if you go to the police station, they also do have people that are trained or have access to people that are trained to forensically interview children to get more information. And a lot of Clinics also have resources for that as well, can direct you to specific sexual assault centers for children to work through those next steps. Because we want to try and prevent this from happening, everything that had to do with the keepers and what we're doing now in terms of providing resources for survivors of abuse, if we can prevent this from happening, What kinds of actions could we or should we be taking, both from the perspective of who the perpetrators are to the things that you've been talking about in terms of talking to children and using resources to help with kids? What else can we do to prevent this 
from happening in the first place. What is your feeling about that? I'm going to give my first answer is going to be a global answer of we need to talk about it. We need to talk about the elephant in the room. People need to talk about their historical trauma that they've had in their families, the secrets that they have in their families. Talk about the secrets because what happens when you're dealing with generational, and we have a lot of people that have had generational abuse that has been passed down and then nobody talks about it. And so nobody prepares the next generation to be safe. And so we need to talk about it. We need to put it out in the open. We need to cast some light down that hole that people fall into when they are abused. And we need to take back our power. You need to, in this day and age, there is a benefit and there's obviously a detriment to social media, but the benefit is that you can get word out fast about potential predators. And go to the media if you have to. If people aren't listening, you have outlets to make people listen, much like you are doing for that, is that use every outlet. We have to be our children's advocates. We have to stop this. We can stop this, but we can't do it if we don't talk about it. It isn't a subject anyone wants to talk about. We shouldn't have to talk about it because it shouldn't exist, but it does. So the more we shine the light on it, the less shadow there will be. And the more we will walk into the future without having it have to be a conversation because we will eradicate. Can you explain what the sex offenders registry is and how people in different parts of the country can access that? Yeah. And also it's important. It's important to note that you can access all of the local police departments like in your area and it will show leveled sex offenders that have to report. They're obviously a level three offenders. You can know them by name and you can know exactly where they live. There are other leveled sex offenders that information isn't public other than they're in the community, but you can access that online. They have those registries online. When there is a level three offender moving into areas, there are community gatherings to talk about that and have an awareness about it. I do think it's important though for people to know that many times there are people that go that really should be leveled at a level three, but are able to have their charges knocked down. So they they have the behaviors of a level three sexual predator, but because of the way the justice systems work, can be have a lesser charge in the end. So it's that it's always the awareness and never assume that a level one is less dangerous than a level three or never assume someone who happened to be acquitted of the charge due to misrepresentation or something like that is suddenly not dangerous. Level three sex offenders are watched regularly. They have a lot of different things and yes, they can reoffend, but people can recover in treatment, they can, and I know that's a tough subject for people, risks can be mitigated. Like I said before, is there are people that have been diagnosed with pedophilia that have never acted on that urge because they mitigate their risks. They're aware of it. They're honest about it. They set up their own risk prevention so that they don't put themselves in a place that they're going to act on it. 
and people that go through sexual offender treatment make those plans. And so there are people that can successfully recover from that if they continue to mitigate that risk for themselves. Like with any mental health disorder, it's lifelong recovery. So as long as you're working your program and mitigating your risks, you can stay in recovery. To touch on that a little bit, do you believe that pedophilia and abusers can be cured? I don't believe in ever using that word of a cure. It is a lifelong recovery. It's understanding your diagnosis. It's understanding your condition and coming up with a plan so that you don't put yourself in a position to act on those burges. It's a lot of work. It's exhausting. It's, it's With any mental health disorder, people can go through remission in different times. And so when you plot out, what am I going to do if I go through a cycle again? So that you're setting yourself up to make it through without getting to the point of hospitalization. And the same goes for pedophilic disorder is that I know what my risks are. If people are being honest and they're being, and they have the capacity for insight, they can say, I know if I'm going by a playground that this sets me off, or I know that watching a sports game, they identify the things that set them off and they set a plan in place to not get triggered. And they can work that plan, but you, but, but it's a lot of work. You have to be all in when people have substance abuse disorders, you can't go anywhere in this world and not have access to it, really. Like, so people mitigate the risk. Where do I go? Okay, it might be there. So if it's there, what do I do? That's exactly what they have to do in this recovery. I think talking to you tonight is going to intrigue a lot of people. And I have a feeling they're going to have more questions. So would you be willing to come back and answer specific questions from our audience? Absolutely. That would be wonderful because I know already I'm thinking <laughs> we wish we had more time. You've been listening to the podcast for this long. So you've heard from all of these people about this subject. And I just would like to know, is there anything that you feel we or our listeners could benefit from knowing? Maybe you're listening and you think, oh, I wish I could say this. This is now your... I think the biggest piece, and this may sound rather simple. But I think what I always want to leave people with is that everything is surmountable. Everything. We have the onus in this generation to use this technology that we have to get the word out like it is being done in these podcasts. And I was talking to one of my adult children who was telling me, that's the way to go, mom. Get on the podcast and talk to people. That's where people are listening. That's where young people listen. One thing that I would want to leave with everyone is be heard. Let your voice be heard. Do not be diminished by the acts that are done to you. Use it. Use it as a stepping stool to step up and be heard. 